0: Welcome back to Hope PR Ministry. Uh, we're once again sat with Prof Engelsma. We're in his study today with my co-host Jeff Kalsbeek. And we're going to be continuing to talk about the topic of marriage, uh, specifically divorce and remarriage today, uh, continuing on from last time. Morning, Jeff. How Morning. you doing? Pretty
1: good. And uh, you are Josh
0: Harris. That's right. So, I forgot to introduce uh, myself. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> we're going to just do a little recap of last time. We talked about divorce and remarriage and God's truth about that, and we'll ask Professor Engelsma to give us that uh, biblical view of divorce and remarriage to start once again. We pointed out last time
2: that fundamental to the church's doctrine of divorce and remarriage, marriage, divorce, and remarriage, is the account of the institution of marriage in Genesis 2. It cannot be emphasized heavily enough that that account of God's institution of marriage in the beginning is fundamental for the church's doctrine of marriage, divorce, and remarriage down the ages. In Genesis 2, we read that God saw that it was not good that Adam be alone, and determined to make a wife to be a help fitted to him, and so created Eve from a rib of Adam and officiated at what we can regard as the original marriage ceremony. He brought Eve to Adam and then declared, as we read at the end of Genesis 2, that the two of them would be one flesh and the man would cleave to his wife so that they would become one flesh. And what's fundamental about that passage is the fact that All of the New Testament instruction on that important aspect of the Christian life that consists of marriage appeals, in one way or another, back to that original institution of marriage in the beginning. Christ's instruction on marriage, divorce, and remarriage in Matthew 19, for example, includes that Christ responded to the Pharisees who tempted him, when they pointed out that Moses permitted Israel to divorce and remarry, Christ's response was, from the beginning it was not so. But in the beginning God made them one flesh, and that truth governs Christ's instruction about marriage and the apostles' instruction concerning marriage, divorce, and remarriage and all the many New Testament passages that teach on that subject. That must govern our discussion today specifically with regard to divorce and remarriage. We must not forget the truth of the institution of marriage in the beginning and the significance of that truth for all later Christian doctrine and practice of marriage, divorce, and remarriage.
1: And as the uh, New Testament passages reveal, like you had said, Jesus and the apostles taught the negative aspect of marriage in the service of the truth of marriage as they dealt with these practical matters that arose. And we're going to talk about those a little bit more today, those New Testament passages. Uh, We ended with the positive truth last time that Jesus has unconditional love for us, his church, and we're commanded and privileged to reflect that unconditional love in our own marriages. So we'll begin again with those New Testament passages. As you mentioned last time, Professor, Jesus had opportunity to address divorce and remarriage in his earthly ministry. He went immediately to Genesis 2, and we'd like you to take us through the, the argument, what Jesus was teaching there in uh, that passage, which is Matthew 19. I think we'll read those verses, Matthew nineteen four through 6. And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh? Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. In that
2: passage, the occasion is a tempting question put to Jesus by the Pharisees, according to Matthew 19, verse 3. And their temptation took the form of this question, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? They suppose that whatever answer he gives will betray him as in error in some regard, with regard to the word of God. So it's a tempting question, and it's important to notice that the tempting question concerns divorce, as we would call it today. A man's putting away his wife. But in the background of the question that concerns specifically divorce is the understanding that invariably a man puts away his wife with the desire to remarry. So the subject of remarriage, although not explicitly mentioned in verse 3, is nevertheless very much in play here. And that's why Jesus, in his response, also refers to the man who divorces his wife, marrying another. That's in the background and implied in the question of the Pharisees to him. But in answer to that tempting question, Jesus appeals to the institution of marriage, as recorded in Genesis chapter 2, and explains that, institution and the Word of God at the first marriage ceremony, as I regard it, as a prohibition of divorce. He takes head-on the question of the Pharisees concerning the permissibility of divorce, putting away one's wife, and argues from the institution of marriage that that is impermissible. One may not divorce his wife. He must cleave to his wife and live in recognition of the reality that the two of them, the man and his wife, are one flesh. They aren't two. They cannot and may not be separated, therefore, but they are one flesh. As intimate as one flesh is, so intimate is the union of the husband and the wife. And he concludes his answer to the Pharisees in verse 6 by the command, What therefore God hath joined together, which is true of every marriage, and I note here that marriage is not strictly and exclusively an ecclesiastical matter, but it's a matter of social reality. God instituted marriage before the institution of the church, and the truth that Jesus is expressing and that we're reflecting on in this discussion today applies to the institution of marriage in the world as well as to the institution of marriage in the church. Jesus' command is, What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. He recognizes that divorce is the attempt of humans to separate or put asunder what God has joined together, and that's forbidden. Let not man put asunder. In divorce, humans are attempting to separate the cleaving and joining that are a reality in God's institution of marriage. And Christ forbids it. And the church ought to recognize that and society ought to recognize that because society is going to be judged according to this word of Jesus Christ as well as members of the church. No divorce. Often in our discussion of this subject, we leap immediately to the matter of remarriage. And that's understandable because, invariably, divorce has a remarriage in view. If not at the time of the divorce, then later, because humans experience the truth of it, that it's not good for man to live alone. We're created to be in a marital relationship. And that's, uh, therefore, it's understandable that when we talk about the subject that we're discussing today, we have a tendency to jump at once to the matter of remarriage following divorce. And what we overlook is that divorce itself is forbidden. Divorce itself is a sin. Jesus commands, What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. He's forbidding divorce there. But the response of the Pharisees to the teaching of Jesus is immediate. And although, in fact, they didn't really have much concern about the teaching of the Bible, they used it here to their advantage, they thought. They bring up the fact that in Deuteronomy 24, Moses permitted the Israelites to divorce and to remarry.
1: Should we read that?
0: Yeah, let's do that. I can read those verses. When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the latter husband hate her and write her a bill of divorcement and giveth it her in her hand, And sendeth her out of his house or if the latter husband die which took her to be his wife her former husband which sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after that she is defiled for that is abomination before the Lord and thou shalt not cause the land to sin which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance
2: the Pharisees appealed to that Old Testament permission of divorce on the part of Israelite men followed, as is invariably the case, by a remarriage. But even then, they misstate the force of that permission. In verse 7 of Matthew 19, the Pharisees respond to Jesus' prohibition of divorce with this question, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? They attribute some regulative power to Moses' words in Deuteronomy 24. The fact is, he didn't command anything there at all, as Jesus points out in verse 8, his response. Moses merely suffered the Israelites to put away their wives. He permitted that. That's interesting. Yeah. And again, significantly, Jesus takes us back to the institution of marriage. From the beginning, it was not so. Even the permission of divorce was not part of the original institution of marriage. But, as he has quoted and emphasized earlier, God joined the two together in such a way that it's impermissible for man to put the two asunder, as the advocates of divorce are eager to do. And I'd like to point out something else about the Deuteronomy 24 passage that is commonly overlooked. Moses did not simply give an unrestricted permission to the Israelites to divorce their wives, but he was talking about the possibility that a man found something unclean in his wife after he married her. Now, it's famously difficult to interpret that uncleanness and explain that uncleanness, what that uncleanness consisted of. There's no further reflection on that in the Old Testament. But I do call attention to the fact that Moses' permission of divorce had to do with this particular instance that a man, after he married his wife, found some uncleanness in her. And in view of the subject of marriage and in view of the term itself, uncleanness, I'm convinced that the man found some kind of sexual uncleanness in his wife, which could only have been gotten by an earlier fornication on her part prior to her marriage to her husband. That's quite a restriction in itself and comes close to the one ground for divorce in the New Testament, which is the fornication of the woman or of the man. But in any case, Moses merely permitted the Israelites to Divorce and then remarry as is inevitably the consequence of divorce. And the important point is that he merely permitted the Israelites to do that. And then Christ adds these serious words, that even in the case of the Old Testament permission of divorce, those who divorced their wives did so because they had hard hearts. And a hard heart is an unbelieving heart. So that the application to those today who like to appeal to that Deuteronomy passage is if you want to apply that to yourself, you're acknowledging that you too have a hard heart. If you want to divorce your wife the way it was permitted in the Old Testament, you're acknowledging that you have a hard heart. And a hard heart is an unbelieving heart. So that by this demand that one be permitted to divorce the way Israel was in the Old Testament. This is
1: acknowledgement of oneself that he is an unbeliever. So Moses' uh, permission, uh, Jesus is saying, was not in harmony with Genesis 2. And he insists that it's plain from the beginning that it was one man and one woman for life. Anything different was disregard to God's law. Is that correct?
2: That's correct. And then it has to be noted too, because Today also, members of the church who'd like to divorce and then remarry will appeal to the Deuteronomy 24 passage in support of their demand for a divorce to be followed by a remarriage. It's important to point out that in the Matthew 19 passage, Jesus immediately follows up on what he has said in explanation of Deuteronomy 24. And I say unto you, so that, Permissive regulation of Moses in Deuteronomy 24, Jesus sets aside and indicates plainly that that is no longer the rule for divorce in the church today. The rule for the church today is Jesus' word in verse 9 of Matthew 19. I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. Now, there is difficulty in that passage, and I suppose we're going to talk about that difficulty. But I want to point out that in general, and in distinction from the Old Testament permission, Jesus forbids divorce. That is the force of his words in verse 9 on the very surface. It was permitted once to put away your wife. It's not permitted to do that anymore. I say unto you that divorce is forbidden. divorce is forbidden the following remarriage is forbidden too and a full explanation of verse 9 has to get into that but it must not be overlooked that the surface meaning of verse 9 is Jesus prohibition of divorce the question from the Pharisees was about the permissibility of divorce with appeal to Moses and Jesus says it's forbidden in the New Testament among the people of God who do not have hard hearts but are born-again, believing, sanctified people. Divorce is forbidden.
0: I think it's important to note as well in the context of Matthew 19, the Pharisees, they were looking to tempt Jesus to say something contrary to what God's Word says and what Moses had said in the law. But what Moses has said in, in Deuteronomy 24, as we said, that's he, he did suffer that, and it wasn't a command necessarily in verses 1 through 4. It was merely an observation that he saw what he saw in Israel. Um, The question I have for you is, when does the observation become law in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 24, and how can we discern between observation and law?
2: The answer to that question is, Jesus sets aside the permission, I'd rather call it that, the permission than the law, Jesus sets aside the permission of Deuteronomy 24 for the New Testament church. When Jesus speaks, that becomes the law for the church. And what may have been permitted in Deuteronomy 24 is no longer regulatory and may no longer be appealed to for marriage behavior any longer in the church. Moses permitted it, Jesus is saying in Matthew 19, I don't permit it. Not even in a case of uncleanness. Divorce is impermissible. And then, of course, it follows that remarriage is impermissible as well. Now, there is an exception to the prohibition of divorce. In Matthew 19, verse 9, Except it be for fornication. So, Jesus does allow divorce, doesn't command it, but permits divorce on the ground that one's mate is guilty of sexual infidelity, which indicates how important the sexual aspect of marriage is, but the important point is that that is the one ground for divorce. Then he adds and marries another because invariably the attempt to divorce one's mate has a remarriage in view, and Christ condemns that remarriage as adultery. Now, the question is, and Matthew 19, verse 9, is a difficult passage on our subject for that reason. The question is, does Jesus only permit divorce on the ground of fornication, or is he also permitting a remarriage on the ground of fornication, and when the reality of the divorce has been on the ground of fornication, so that there is a permission to remarry on the one ground of the fornication of one's mate. I want to come back to the prohibition of divorce. We should not right away get into the issue of the permissibility or impermissibility of the innocent party, so-called, to remarry when we're discussing Matthew 19, verse 9. But we should recognize the force of verse 9 as the forbidding of divorce for all reasons except for the reason of fornication. And that points out the sinfulness of a great deal of behavior on the part of professing Christians today and the error of many churches to allow divorce on many other grounds beside the ground of fornication. We recognize that fornication is a ground for divorce, but that's the only ground for divorce that is permitted to be
1: in operation in the New Testament church. And even that doesn't break the bond. I think you had mentioned that last, last time we met, that uh, man's sin can't, can't break that bond yet, even if there is a divorce.
2: That observation is of crucial importance. The question is, does divorce on the ground of the fornication of one's mate break or dissolve the marriage bond? If it does, the so-called innocent party has a right to remarry But the second part of Matthew 19, verse 9, often overlooked also in the discussion on the subject of that text, speaks to that very point. In the second part of Matthew 19, verse 9, we read, "...and whoso marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery." In that second part of the text, Jesus is referring to the woman who has been divorced, even though she has not committed adultery, and whose husband has married another and is committing adultery. Now if it's true that the fornication of one's mate makes lawful the remarriage of the person who has not committed adultery, Jesus could not have said what he did in the second part of Matthew 19 verse nine. Even though her husband has put her away, though she has not committed adultery, and the same husband is married now to another and is committing adultery, She is forbidden to remarry. Whoever marries her is committing adultery, and you can't commit adultery by yourself alone, so she is committing adultery as well. And that indicates the answer to the question, does divorce dissolve the marriage bond? The fact is that the marriage bond remains intact even though divorce has taken place on the ground of fornication. The only dissolving of the marriage bond is death, as is pointed out by 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, and other passages where the apostle plainly says that a woman is bound to her husband as long as her husband liveth, but if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will only in the Lord. Fornication does not dissolve the marriage bond. Only God can dissolve the marriage bond. Sin cannot dissolve it. And God himself dissolves the bond when one of the two married persons dies. Death is the only dissolution of the bond.
1: Is there uh, anything to the fact that it has been pointed out by some that words for divorce in Scripture might mean dissolve? The Greek term for
2: putting away does not mean dissolve. That sheer conjecture, and that's the intrusion into the debate of a point that would settle the matter of the possibility of remarriage after divorce in favor of those who advocate remarriage after divorce. The fact of the matter is, and that's an important point, the Bible itself makes plain that divorce does not dissolve the marriage bond. And the Greek term for putting away does not mean dissolve. It simply means to separate unjustly what God has joined together and to attempt to separate the cleaving that is essential to marriage by God's institution of the marriage bond. So simply put, putting away or divorce in the New Testament, that word, that Greek term, does not mean dissolve. The only thing that dissolves the bond is the death of one of the two married persons.
0: And that is the way that God decreed it to be. He's the one who formed, he was the one who who made marriage, he's the one that joins two together and he's the only one that can decide the basis for the marriage ending. That's
2: correct, and the institution of marriage in the beginning makes that plain. The two cleave and become one flesh by God's action in the institution of marriage. And as God is the one who unites them and makes them one flesh, an extraordinarily strong statement. One flesh is like saying one complete human being and that's indissoluble except by the God who instituted marriage. And that is decisive for the questions that come up in the church today. May there be a remarriage after divorce, if not for every reason, then on the ground of the fornication of one's husband or wife. The answer to that question must be determined in light of the institution of marriage in Genesis 2. God has made the two one flesh, and that's such a tight union, such an intimate union, that nothing can separate that except God by death. Even the gross sin of fornication cannot separate the one flesh into two fleshes again.
1: I'm reminded, too, that it has to be God-given faith to believe that truth about one flesh. Uh, God miraculously makes to one flesh it's not observable that that's what has happened and that's where uh, the importance of faith comes in to, to believe that that actually happens in a marriage I think that's right we live together
2: in marriage and the church makes its statements about marriage out of faith in Jesus Christ as Jesus Christ is made known in Scripture It's not surprising, then, that the world pays no attention to this whatsoever and blithely attempts to separate what God has joined and ignores the cleaving that belongs to the marriage institution. That shouldn't surprise us. No, But what does surprise us and ought to appall us is that the church, the nominal church, flies in the face of this and ignores this and makes grounds for setting aside the truth of what is a basic aspect of the Christian life as that is revealed in Scripture starting with the institution of marriage in Genesis 2 the church is betraying the truth of marriage.
1: What about forcible marriage I'm thinking I've, I've read where just little girls 11 12 year old girls were forced to marry a man it's where I, I the question kind of comes from where when does this one flesh union happen when does God make two one flesh now of course in that hypothetical you you could have a man that uh, he's a cult leader and he's got uh, a dozen wives and then he takes other girls well that probably not a marriage he's married to his first wife but there there could be cases where somebody's forced into marriage as a little girl is that God putting them two as one flesh that profound question
2: really is what constitutes a marriage, a lawful marriage. There are several aspects to a genuine marriage, one of which would conclude that the sexual union of a man and of a little girl against her will is not a marriage. One of the aspects of a genuine marriage is that the two willingly take each other as a husband and a wife, and you don't have that in the case of the forcible taking to oneself of a girl, little girl, against her will, or forcible marriages in other respects. The two must take each other willingly as husband and wife, which can be done in the world as well as in the church. But a forcible union, though it might call itself a marriage, does not constitute a marriage at all. And taking each other in marriage involves expressing that as well and vowing in one way or another, to be the husband and wife of the other.
1: So you would say that at that point, that's when God b- brings a man and a woman together yes. in that one flesh union. Okay. I had a question yet on uh, it's Matthew 19, verse 6, where it says, Therefore what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. It's the wording of of that that makes it seem like there's a concession there. Let not man put asunder. We have the ideal. Jesus states the ideal, but let not man put asunder. Can you say anything about that, The if that's translated correctly, or if the original language has it different?
2: The surface meaning of the last phrase of Matthew 19, verse 6, is a prohibition of the attempt to divide what God hath joined together in the marriage of every man and every woman who take each other as husband and wife, it's a prohibition against divorce. It does not imply that it is possible to dissolve the union that God has made. The rest of scripture makes plain, and this passage does it does also, that in the end it's impossible to dissolve the bond that God has made at the marriage of two. But that the end of verse 6 is simply the prohibition against the attempt to do that by human divorce. It's similar to something like this, I might say to a heretic, don't deceive the true church of Jesus Christ. It's a prohibition against all efforts to deceive the church. It doesn't imply that he can. The true church cannot be deceived, but attempts are made, and though that kind of thought is the explanation of the end of verse 6. Okay. I've touched on the problem of Matthew 19 verse 9 does the fornication of one's mate apply only to the divorce or does it apply also to the remarriage so that verse 9 must be understood as teaching that in the case of fornication not only may one divorce but he may also marry another this text is not the clearest on that issue and we have to interpret it in the light of other scripture but also in light of the end of verse 9, which I have already explained, the innocent woman who has been divorced unjustly by her husband and whose husband has married another and is committing adultery is forbidden to remarry. If she does remarry, she and her new mate, her new husband are committing adultery. So that makes plain that when Jesus gives the exception clause that applies only to the prohibition of divorce, Jesus is saying there, you may not divorce except on the ground of fornication. But then he goes on to speak of marrying another because that's invariably in view when somebody divorces his wife or a, man, a woman divorces her husband and judges that the remarriage is a committing of adultery.
1: Yeah, and I think uh, those other passages that we touched on last time in our last session were real helpful explaining the uh, full significance of Matthew 19.
2: Here one must practice the rule you interpret Scripture in the light of Scripture, and you interpret the less clear passage in light of the clearer passage. In Mark 10 and Luke 16, Romans 7 and 1 Corinthians 7, all unconditionally and without exception prohibit remarriage. So that sheds light on Matthew 19, verse 9, that the exception clause applies only to the prohibition of divorce. And there's no implication here that remarriage, even on the ground of fornication, is permitted.
1: Yeah. What about the uh, the disciples' response in verse 10? Why did they respond that way? His disciple, I'll read that. His disciples say unto him, "If the case of the man be with be so with his wife, it is not good to marry." The disciples make the application
2: that a man may marry badly, as we think. And that's not altogether strange in the experience of pastors who have worked with difficult marriage cases in their congregations. What I say about the woman applies, of course, to the man as well, possibly. A woman may marry badly also, as she supposes. The man, in view in verse 10, may find himself with a wife who is miserable to live with, a shrew, and one who is sexually stingy as well, so that his life is seemingly to him intolerable, and he thinks he has ground for divorce just to get rid of her. The response to that man, in addition to what Christ says, is that a man may make a mistake in marrying a woman, as he supposes, but God didn't make a mistake. God gave him that wife, even though she's a difficult woman to live with. But Jesus responds, by saying that's very well possible that a man finds himself with a miserable woman as his wife, so that his prohibition of divorce is a difficult saying for such a man. Practicing that prohibition of divorce means that he has to stay in this marriage relationship with a woman who is difficult to live with and goes on to say, Jesus goes on to say in verse 12, that there are some eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. The sexual aspect of marriage is certainly in play there. The woman may not be willing to have sexual relations with her husband so that he's virtually a eunuch. He has to be willing to live in that state of marriage for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus doesn't give up the rules about the permanency of marriage for the sake of the difficulty that some christians may find themselves in and that's the difficulty a man may find himself consigned to live with a miserable wife all his life year after year and included in that misery is that he lives the life virtually of a eunuch apart from sexual relations with her well then he ought to look at it this way that this is suffering that he endures for the kingdom of heaven's sake but he must remain in that marriage, and he may not divorce his wife. So the disciples' question was, it's better not to be married at all to, than to be married to some women. And that poses hardship for a man in light of what Jesus has just taught about lifelong marriage with no possibility of divorce. Jesus does not relax the rule, but calls some men then to live the life of a eunuch, or to live a miserable life in marriage all his life long, and to do that for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The Christian life carries with it sometimes hardships. Jesus recognizes that. That's not the only hardship. There are other hardships also, but we must be willing to endure those hardships without compromising the word of God for the sake of the kingdom of heaven.
1: Yeah, that's a wonderful response uh, of Jesus. He points them to their faith and to look look beyond their earthly circumstances to the kingdom of heaven
0: yeah I think yeah as he talks about eunuchs as well he he he's basically saying as well that marriage is not the be-all and end-all for the people that he's speaking to and that it is good to to be a eunuch as well it's good to be single you serve the church and there should be joy in serving the church the marriage joy does not come necessarily through marriage or any earthly aspect it comes through faith as you say by living by faith and living for the Lord and and for the sake of his church.
2: The Apostle Paul picks up on this aspect of Jesus' marital instruction in 1 Corinthians 7. There's a section in 1 Corinthians 7 that addresses exactly the kind of thing Jesus is referring to in answer to the question of his disciples in Matthew 19. He calls us to remember that this life is short and the life to come is long. We must have in view, even in our marital life, not only this life, but also the life to come. The life to come has to be more important to us than pleasures or a lack of pleasure in our marriages.
1: Yeah, it seems like the starting point is crucial in the child of God's mind uh, going into marriage. If it's, I have a right to be happy in my marriage, then that's one thing but if your starting point is what is god's will or what is pleasing to god then that changes everything
2: i think it's applicable here too to reflect on the real marriage which as ephesians 5 points out is our reunion to jesus christ our marriage to jesus christ doesn't mean that we're happy all the time or that there are no unpleasant circumstances that we have to suffer Many of God's people have suffered greatly, have suffered great loss, because of their union to Jesus Christ. Some were even willing to give up their life and were tortured for the sake of their union to Christ. So happiness and personal human satisfaction are not the determinative matter in, their, in our earthly marriages. There are miserable women. There are husbands who are unfeeling brutes. I'm not saying they abuse their wife, but they don't show much affection to their wife. And I can understand that a man or a woman would say, I would rather live a single life than to endure this marriage with this woman or with this man. And then the call of Jesus is, be a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven's sake.
0: Uh, So in in Malachi 2, uh, verses 11 through 16, uh, could you explain God's teaching of divorce?
2: What Malachi 2 is addressing is this situation among the people of Judah returned from captivity, the men found heathen, unbelieving women more attractive than their own wife. And what was going on in Judah was that the men were divorcing their Jewish covenantal believing wife in order to marry heathen women. And what's especially significant about the word of the prophet Malachi to them is, first of all, that again he appeals to the institution of marriage in the beginning in Genesis 2. That's why I say that almost invariably in the Old Testament as in the New Testament when the subject of marriage, divorce, and remarriage comes up, appeal is made to the decisive institution of marriage by God in the beginning and the marriage sermon that God preached about marriage at the end of Genesis 2. Always we come back to that. That must determine the thinking and the behavior of the church and of the believers concerning their marriages. That's verse 13 in Malachi 2. And did he not make one? Reflecting on what he had said at the end of verse 24. She is thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. That's a way of alluding to the cleaving of the two originally. And their becoming one flesh. God made one. So he's forbidding divorce. But there's also indication in the passage that he takes into view the remarriage with heathen women that was the effect of the divorce and the purpose of the divorce. This is also significant about the Malachi passage. It adds something to what other passages in the Bible have to say about the importance of the lifelong permanency of marriage. It takes into view the welfare of the children. One of the purposes of God in the unity of the husband and wife in the church now and the maintenance of that unity against all temptation to divorce is that God has a godly seed in view. Verse 15, he asks the question, does Malachi, wherefore did God make the two one that he might seek a godly seed? And that's of extraordinary importance to the church today. One effective way of destroying the children who are baptized is for the parents to divorce and then bring another party into the home who is not the mother or the father of the children. That's destructive of the godliness of the children. Important for the godliness of the children is that they're brought up in a solid home where one believing man lives with one believing woman faithfully with each other, establishing the godly atmosphere of a home and giving godly instruction to the children. Negatively, divorce and remarriage in general is destructive of the salvation of the children that are part of that family. And parents who are thinking of divorcing each other even because the marriage is not satisfactory ought to take their children into view. They're responsible to guide their children to salvation and give them a solid basis for their faith and life. Coming back to the original question, Malachi 2 is dealing with Wicked divorce with a view to marrying heathen women. Verse 11 speaks of this. Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord which he loved and hath married the daughter of a strange God. Upon their return from Babylonian captivity where they had undoubtedly learned some heathen practices, the men of Judah were drawn to heathen women. So they were practicing what we call mixed marriages but divorcing their believing wives in order to enter into these relationships with the daughter of a strange God. So that belongs to the teaching of Malachi 2 as well, marriage with idolaters, marriage with non-believers. And Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians 7 as he does about every aspect of marriage. In 1 Corinthians 7 verse 39, which I've already quoted, Paul says that a woman is bound by the law to her husband so long as her husband liveth. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will, where death is pointed out as the sole dissolution of the bond of marriage that permits remarriage. But then Paul adds this, only in the Lord. The death of one's mate permits a woman to marry another man, but it has to be a marriage in the Lord. It has to be a marriage to another believer.
0: So what would you say to someone listening today who is married to an unbeliever? That's not a ground for divorce, of course, right? That's it, It's only on the basis of fornication that you may divorce. What, what do you say to someone who is married to an unbeliever? Paul in 1
2: Corinthians 7 addresses that very question. Specifically, he envisions among the Corinthians the marriage of some of them to unbelievers, which is... Understandable because the Corinthians married prior to the coming of the gospel to Corinth. They were all unbelievers, and they had marriages, therefore, with unbelieving men and unbelieving women. When the gospel came, some of them were converted, and their mate was not converted. So they opened up their eyes one morning, and they were in bed with an unbeliever. And Paul addresses that specifically and says that's a valid marriage. You must stay in it, entertaining the hope that God will, by your good behavior, Convert your mate so that you may have marriage with a believer. And I can't help but point out that that instruction, again, harks back to the institution of marriage in Genesis 2. Marriage was instituted by God prior to the coming of the gospel into the world. The gospel came into the world in Genesis 3.15. Marriage was instituted as a creation ordinance. So it's an ordinance binding for unbelievers as well as for believers. Marriage belongs to the sphere of the natural life, the life of creation, not only to the life of the church, so that the marriage between a believer and an unbeliever is a valid marriage. You can't have the Lord's Supper outside of the instituted church, but you have valid marriages outside the sphere of the church. So the marriage of a believer and an unbeliever is a valid marriage, and as long as the unbeliever is willing to dwell with the believer, the believer must stay in that relationship and regard herself or himself as validly married and not living in an ungodly relationship.
1: Is it possible to read Malachi 2 to not be referring to hatred of divorce itself, but more a hatred of unjust divorce or sinful causes of divorce?
2: Malachi as reference to divorce
1: as such and to
2: divorce with a view particularly to remarriage with a heathen woman. And Malachi calls divorce as such dealing treacherously against the wife of your youth. That's the end of verse 15. One who divorces his wife, except in case of fornication now, which is not in view in Malachi 2, one who divorces his wife, deals treacherously with her. He betrays her. And I've seen this happen more often than I would have liked in my own pastoral ministry, although it applies to a woman as well as to a man. All of a sudden, a woman who supposes that she's happily married to her husband, probably has children besides, finds out from him that he's not satisfied with her. He wants to get rid of her. He's got somebody else in view. That's sin in many respects, but it's treachery. brings tears to your eyes. This young woman who gave herself, entrusted herself, body and soul to her husband, is treacherously divorced by her husband, betrayed. And that's how Malachi views all divorce, except of course on the ground of fornication, which is not the subject in Malachi too.
1: So by bringing up treachery against your original spouse, that's That's more than just a a sinful, unjust divorce. That's all divorce. That's emphasized in what follows in verse 16. The Lord, the God of
2: Israel, saith that he hated putting away. It would be a mistake for us too if we found ourselves in this discussion talking about the evil of remarriage as though the remarriage is the only evil. Divorce itself is an evil and God hates it putting away is divorce. God hates divorce. And if any message of our conversation today gets out into the broader church world and to the world itself, I would like that to be front and center. Divorce is rampant in the churches as well as in the world, and I want the churches especially, but the world too, as many of them as come across this message to know this about the God of the church, the God of the Protestant Reformed churches. Our God hates putting away, and we hate it too. And not least of all, that a man betrays his wife, deals treacherously with her, that angers us, that grieves us. We want people to know that so that they will refrain from putting away or divorcing.
1: Could you speak uh, yet on the passages like Isaiah 1 and Jeremiah 3, verse 8, where God says he divorces his wife? I'll gladly do that. I'll gladly speak
2: about The similar subject in the Isaiah passage and in the Jeremiah passage by referring specifically to the Jeremiah passage, and that will have its consequences for our interpretation of the Isaiah passage as well. Jeremiah 3 tells Israel that God divorced her because she was guilty of spiritual adultery by her idolatry. She was unfaithful to God in the covenant relationship, and God refers to that in terms of marriage. Israel sinned against the marriage with God by committing spiritual adultery. She gave God the one ground, the one lawful ground for divorce. And God divorced her. He put her away. But he did not put her away in such a way that the bond was dissolved. I love that Jeremiah passage exactly because it makes that plain. And the fact of the matter is that God took her back. The Jeremiah 3 passage speaks of that as well. The marriage was not dissolved. The marriage was temporarily a separation.
1: Yeah, let's read that. Uh, Jeremiah 3.8. And I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce.
2: Yes, Gen- Jeremiah 3.8 expresses that God divorced Israel. He's faithful to his own rules concerning marriage. He didn't divorce her because he got sick of her and he liked the Babylonians better. But he divorced her on the ground of her adultery, persistent, impenitent, provoking adultery. But that adultery did not dissolve the marriage. And verse 14 of Jeremiah 3 expresses that very thing. I'm reading Jeremiah 3 verse 14 where God addresses the people that he had divorced. Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord, for I am married unto you. How can he say that? The bond was not dissolved. Even the grossest adultery, far worse than that a woman among us would commit adultery against her husband. This is the adultery of God's people against God himself, did not dissolve the marriage with him. And he says so in so many words. I am married unto you he takes her back, and he reconciles her to himself, especially in the suffering and death of Jesus Christ, which was the redemption of the true Israel of God, as well as the redemption of the elect among all nations. So the appeal to Genesis 3, to Jeremiah 3, by those who advocate remarriage after a divorce on the ground of adultery,
1: is self-refuting. That's the truth of Uh, the mystery of Christ in his church already in the Old Testament that our marriages are to reflect. That's a beautiful
0: passage. It's a frightening thought as well to consider that the Lord may divorce his church, but it's a a comforting thing to know that the Lord is faithful and, and just to forgive us of our sins when we confess them to him. He takes us back and he takes us back into fellowship with him.
2: What's said here about the church as a whole applies to each of us personally, as you point out. By our sins we can be divorced, but never in such a way that our covenant relationship with him is dissolved. He doesn't let that happen. He's faithful to us when we're not faithful to him. And he reconciles us to himself, which indicates that the marriage remained intact. He brings it to its legitimate and full expression by reconciling us to himself.
1: That's the gospel of Hosea, too, I'm reminded mm-hmm. of, that Hosea put away his wife for a time in order that to be the means to to bring her back to repentance
0: and implies the call of the gospel then for us to repent and to believe and it comes to all of us those in the church and those outside of the church to repent and believe in in Jesus Christ
1: thank you again professor Engelsma we should uh, wrap up our session here today
0: welcome back to hope PR ministry my name is Josh Harris and I'm again sat with my co-host Jeff Kalsbeek. Hey Jeff. Hi Josh. It's good to have you with us again and we're also sat with Professor David Engelsma again. Hi Prof. Good afternoon. Uh, So we're continuing our series. Yeah and uh, last
1: time just to recap a little bit we, we went through a few passages with Professor Engelsma and he explained those passages and showed that Jesus taught that uh, sin, particularly divorce, cannot break or dissolve the marriage bond, and that uh, Jesus himself taught that in those uh, New Testament passages. So it's a matter of submitting to Jesus himself. And so today we're going to pick up and maybe go through some of the practical circumstances on this teaching of divorce and remarriage that we've talked about in the last couple of podcasts, and then how that developed in the history of the
0: Protestant Reformed Churches and ask Professor some questions regarding that. So we'd like to begin by asking about the circumstance of a divorced and remarried couple who have been converted and they're now faced with this teaching of divorce and remarriage which we have discussed in previous episodes. What does God's Word have to say to someone who is divorced and remarried while well, their first spouse is still living but they come to a proper understanding of divorce and remarriage whilst in their second marriage even with children in that second marriage?
2: The situation that you describe and refer to is undoubtedly the most difficult situation of all in the matter of the truth of God's word concerning marriage, divorce and remarriage. There are people who have divorced and remarried when they were in a condition of unbelief or in a condition anyway of ignorance of the teaching of the Bible concerning the truth of marriage. And they have produced children so that they have a home life which apparently is Christian and certainly comfortable for themselves and the question then is raised when they come into contact with the biblical teaching of lifelong marriage what now must we do and invariably that question is accompanied by an objection before they ever hear the truth of the word of God about their situation certainly God would not require us to abandon our mate and our family. The biblical response to that question and the biblical light that shines upon their situation is that they are living in a state of adultery, regardless that they did not know when they remarried that that was adultery. The Bible clearly teaches in Matthew 19, in Luke 16, and in 1 Corinthians 7, that remarriage after Divorce, while the original mate is still living, is adultery, and that judgment by Holy Scripture stands regardless of the difficult circumstances in which that places certain people who confess to be Christians. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. That's a motto that's familiar in secular society and the truth of that certainly applies to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of Jesus Christ requires a certain state of holiness of life, regardless of the difficulty of living that holy life on the part of some. The truth about marriage is not only a truth within the church, but it's also a truth that applies to all of society, regardless whether society is aware of this truth or ignorant of this truth it's important to notice that God instituted marriage prior to the establishment of the church so that the reality of marriage applies to earthly society and not only to the church. And the standard, the truth of the Bible concerning marriage, whether in society or in the church, whether People are aware of this truth or ignorant of this truth is that one man marries one woman for life and that remarriage after divorce while an original mate is still living is adultery regardless whether the people were aware of that when they remarried or not. The calling therefore of the one who has been converted specifically now in his knowledge of the truth of marriage The calling of such a one is that he must live separately from his wife, or she must live separately from her second husband, and do the best they can cooperatively with regard to the raising of what children God may have provided for that family. Admittedly, this is a difficult calling, but we must not forget that the calling to be a Christian and to live a Christian life is difficult in any situation and that there are certain applications of this calling that are extremely painful. I think for example of the calling of a Christian to confess the name of Jesus Christ against a persecuting world. The effect of that confession of Jesus Christ may very well be that one is imprisoned or even killed, tortured and killed, but the difficulty of the calling of the Christian does not negate the calling itself. The Christian is called to live a pure sexual life, regardless of the difficulties of the implication of that for the child of God. So living separately from one's wife or husband is not altogether outside the realm of the reality of the Christian life in many other circumstances as well. Admittedly, to live separately from one to whom one has been married, at least as far as society is concerned, is difficult. It demands sacrifice, but the Christian life always is a matter of sacrifice, and so it ought not to be thought altogether strange that this is a calling of those who have broken the law of God in their ignorant, unbelieving situation. The basic facts of the matter are that remarriage after divorce is sin, whether one was aware of that or was not aware of that, and the calling of the repentant child of God is to break with the commission of sin in his life. Therefore, the two who have been remarried, as far as the state is concerned, the calling is to live separately, regardless of the difficulties of that situation.
1: Now, um, separation or divorce is uh, devastating to children. Does that play any part in in this consideration that there are children involved and children of divorce uh, suffer greatly in, in a situation like this? The calling of those who have been remarried in
2: ignorance and unbelief to separate certainly will have a tremendous effect upon the children. They will no longer be raised by two parents. But don't forget that under the blessing of God, the faithfulness of the parents to obey the word of God by living separately may very well have a beneficial effect upon the children. They will have impressed upon them how important the calling to live the Christian life is so that their parents even live separately in obedience to that Christian calling. And as I indicated earlier, although the parents must live separately, they can still cooperate in certain ways to raise their children together. The husband will support his wife and his children financially and take the children to himself individually from time to time so that they agree on the teaching and the rearing of the children as much as possible even though they're not living together under the same roof they don't abandon their children necessarily because yeah, they obey true. the word of God to live separately
1: was that what uh, Ezra he told the priests to leave their second wife when they had uh, abandoned their the wife of their youth?
2: There is a certain application of that incident in the life of Israel at the time of Ezra. The men of Israel had married heathen wives, and Ezra demanded that they put those heathen wives away with their children. So there's a principle there that applies to the church today, but the application of that historical event in the history of Israel does not apply in its detail to the church today. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, the apostle deals with a similar situation. There were men in the church who had married unbelievers before they had been converted to Christ, and the wife had not been converted, so that a believer and an unbeliever were living together under the same roof in the institution of marriage. And Paul commands the believer to remain in the relationship with the unbeliever, if the unbeliever is willing to have this take place. And he assures the believer that the unbelief of the of the unbeliever will not dominate in the marriage and in the family, but that the faith of the believer will be the dominating spiritual power. So there you have a situation similar to the situation in Ezra's time, but the believer is called to live in the relationship in the New Testament whereas in the time of Ezra, the men of Judah had to put their
1: unbelieving spouses away. I was thinking that 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 was because they had an original spouse. I don't recall that those
2: were the dominating factors in the command of Ezra, but that Ezra had his eye on the fact simply that the men of Judah had taken unbelieving, idolatrous wives in the marriage, and they were to put them away because of their unbelief. There is a difference in the application of the great truth of marriage, the application, I say, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, just as there is a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament with regard to polygamy. I think we talked about that last time. In the Old Testament, some of God's children had many wives, David and Solomon, come to mind, and that does not apply to the men of the church today
1: office bearers who uh, counsel divorced members to remarry, and then the those members do. Would you say that they have the greater sin when office bearers are counseling to remarry? That question
2: is reality today in the nominal church. There are many ministers and elders who approve of remarriage after divorce, and in that advice, members of the church to remarry. Their advice is wrong and sinful and mistaken, and by that advice they share in the sin of adultery, which they counsel the members of the church to live in. And that fact makes what we're doing here in this conversation extremely important particularly if God gives an extended audience to our conversation about marriage. This will put office bearers on guard lest they make themselves guilty of connivance at the sin of adultery by approving the remarriage of members of their church when an original member is still alive. The matter that we're discussing is not merely an academic or theological matter without any practical application. I am contending... And I have demonstrated from scripture conclusively that remarriage after divorce, while the original mate is still living, is adultery. And adultery, impenitently continued in, plunges the adulterer into hell. So this has the gravest practical application to what is going on in many of the churches today. And God grant that there are many who listen to what we're saying and listening with a believing and obedient heart so that they mend their manners and change their ways.
0: You said that this is a very real threat in the church today where office bearers will give wrong advice to remarry to, a, to an individual. How important of a factor is it then, when this is such a real concern and an issue within the church, how, how important of a factor is it for a couple when looking for a new church to seek out a church which teaches the biblical truths of Scripture?
2: the stand of a church on the important matter of marriage, and I hardly need to state that the matter of marriage is a crucially important reality in the life of most Christians, such is the importance of the stand of a church regarding marriage, divorce, and remarriage, that those who are searching for church membership must make this a fundamental matter in their decision. If A church approves remarriage after divorce and welcomes such persons to the Lord's Supper table. They are contradicting a fundamental teaching of the Bible regarding the Christian life. And in connection with that, they are putting themselves in the position that they take the Lord's Supper with practicing adulterers. And that means that the person who joins that church becomes guilty of the sin of adultery himself or herself by the fellowship that he or she has with these practicing adulterers. Just to speak of the Lord's Supper, the Bible warns against partaking of the Lord's Supper with those who are living impenitently in sin and the warning of scripture and of the reform form for the lord's supper is that such a one becomes himself guilty of the sin of the one with whom he is taking the lord's supper so this is an extremely important matter practically the wrath of god comes down upon the whole congregation of persons and office bearers who are practicing adultery
0: that's really interesting and what you say as well which applying to the lord's supper that That doesn't just apply to marriage, of course. It applies to all doctrines within the church. When the church does not hold to the truths of Scripture and there is open sin occurring in the congregation, when you take the Lord's Supper with those individuals, that's not right at all. And again, it shows the importance of aligning yourself with a church which holds to the truths of Scripture and agree, and that you agree with the truths that are taught in that church.
2: The truth of this came home to me again recently since we have gathered at our last meeting to discuss the truth of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. There are those who are doing that very thing at present. They're leaving the Protestant Reformed churches and joining a Presbyterian church that permits remarriage after divorce, both on the ground of the adultery of one's mate and on the ground of having been deserted by one's mate. This is the official position of this Presbyterian church, and undoubtedly there are members in the church who are divorced and remarried as the church permits and these people came to me for counsel, and among my counsel was, you better be on your guard when you have to answer to Christ for this, that you will be going to the Lord's Supper with divorced and remarried persons who are living in the sin of adultery, according to Jesus in Matthew 19 and Luke 16, and according to the Apostle Paul, very plainly in 1 Corinthians 7. And of course, the warning was, you may not join a church that proves of continual adultery. You must take this into consideration when you're making a decision regarding church membership. Now, that seems to be a hard piece of advice, but as I said before, this is not my own personal law. This is the law and rule of Jesus himself repeatedly in the Gospels and of Paul as bluntly and plainly as is possible in 1 Corinthians 7. We've looked at and quoted the passages in 1 Corinthians 7, and I remind us and the audience of 1 Corinthians 7 verse 39, where the apostle wraps up all that he has been teaching about the permanency, the lifelong permanency of marriage. The wife is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will only in the Lord. Now, it can't be any clearer than it is there, and if that rule is broken by remarriage, as is the case in many churches today, you have stark contradiction of the word of the apostle and the overthrow of the institution of marriage and the condemnation of remarried persons as adulterers, and that certainly must be taken into account when someone decides on his or her church membership. And of course, there's also this implication of joining a church where this is practiced, and that is that one's own generation's children will actually divorce and remarry, so that one brings this sin into one's own physical family, where the possibility is very, really there. Now, this message is ignored and minimized. And when this testimony is given, the reaction of the leaders of such churches is sarcasm and condemnation. But as I've said before, this is the plain teaching of the Bible. This is not the teaching merely of a certain denomination of churches or of certain theologians. All that we do is refer to and quote and apply the word of the Lord himself who determines the Christian life. He does. And it's all in the interest of the permanency of marriage, the worth of which cannot be overemphasized. We shouldn't forget that. Our condemnation of divorce and remarriage is in the interest of the maintenance of marriage. I may have mentioned this before, but I was a pastor in the churches for 25 years and did my share of practical pastoral work. And I have realized through that work, how seemingly fragile many marriages are in the church. Open the door to divorce and remarriage and you're going to have a flood of divorces and remarriages to the dishonoring of God, to the destruction of children. Talk about children who are affected by the divorcing or separating of parents who had remarried in their ignorance. Far more grave and threatening is the destruction of children whose parents in the church divorce and marry somebody else. They're destroyed by that instability of the marriage of their father and mother. So what stand we take is in the interest of the welfare of the covenant children of the church.
1: Yeah, I know my own nature. If, if I was in that situation, I, I could see my own nature looking at the church world as a whole and their acceptance of divorce and remarriage and determining for myself, I'm going to go to a church that allows me to do my own will and remarry if I want. It's
2: our, our nature. How our often nature? doesn't it happen in the best of marriages, among the holiest of the people of God, that a wife gets on a husband's nerves and even worse angers him, or the husband, the wife, and the thought of divorcing this woman or divorcing this man and finding a better mate doesn't come up in the in the thinking of the best of Christians. Now let the church say that's possible, that's permissible and the consequences are disastrous for yeah. the institution of marriage and for the children in the family.
0: What you say there, Jeff, as well, that's that's the easy way for one to take easy and way. the Christian yeah. life is not an easy life by any means. You hinted at as well earlier on in our recording today, uh, professor. Yeah. The Christian life is a life of difficult choices and difficult decisions which have difficult outcomes. That's the way it's gonna be. We've been told by Christ in the past in his word that Christians are going to have suffering in this life, we're to to expect it. We're not to expect an easy life and to have easy way outs like that. Jesus
2: himself said, and that applies to marriage as well as every other aspect of the Christian life, the way is narrow. It's not wide. It's narrow for us all. And faithfulness in marriage is not the only aspect of that narrowness, but it certainly is one of them.
1: I can see that from the point of view, too, of office bearers. When you, when you speak of the narrow or the wide way, it has to be tempting for office bearers, too. They stand in the place of Christ, but they see almost the entire church world, it seems, allowing for divorce and remarriage. And they counsel to allow it as well because they don't want to be isolated as churches from the, the entire church world, it seems like. From that point of view, too, the church leaders of today, there's a great temptation for that, I would imagine. There's something despicable about that
2: kind of advice by an office bearer, in my judgment. When you're in the midst of a pastoral situation that deals with a marriage that's on the rock, so to speak, the easy way, the way that pleases the two people who are sitting there getting your advice, is to counsel, well, you, you may divorce. And there's always a the prospect of a better mate that you may take to yourself. Then you're a popular counselor. you please the people that you're counseling. But you don't please Christ. And the counsel sometimes is hard. The way to the kingdom is narrow. And we're bound to give the counsel that is founded upon the Word of God.
1: Yeah. Reminded that we have to pray for our office bearers, that they're not men-pleasers. Absolutely. Because that's our nature, too. So there's all sorts of complicated uh, situations, there's all kinds of questions once there's a divorce and remarriage and uh, the implication is be faithful in your marriage. when you see when you see all of the, the devastation out there, the importance of remaining faithful in your marriage.
2: That's the positive calling and that calling is underscored with regard to its consciousness in the mind of the husband and the wife if it lives in their consciousness this marriage to this man or this woman is for life regardless of circumstances regardless of the difficulty regardless that she doesn't please me the way i'd like her to do or i don't or the husband doesn't please me the way i want a husband to please me and what does that do that motivates the two to exert themselves to live the way they ought to in marriage. The husband to govern in love and the wife to submit as the church submits to Christ. But if always there's in the back of your mind, if it doesn't work, there's an escape route. The husband and the wife or the wife are not going to exert themselves to forgive each other and to pattern their life after the biblical examples.
1: Could you tell us, Professor regarding the historical position of the Protestant Reformed churches and how that came to be, especially in uh, the founder, Reverend Hoeksema.
2: The way in which the Protestant Reformed churches came to this conviction concerning the permanency of marriage is both interesting and instructive. For some years after the Protestant Reformed churches were established in 1924, The position of the leader of the churches, Hermann and of the churches themselves was that marriage is lifelong except in the case of adultery, and by that they meant not only that the only ground for divorce was adultery, but also that adultery was the ground of a remarriage. Herman Huxema and the Protestant Reformed Churches came out of the Christian Reformed Church, and Huxema himself admitted that for some years after the founding of the Protestant Reformed Churches, his doctrine of marriage was that which he had learned in the Christian Reformed Church and which was the position of the Christian Reformed Church. And that was the position I've just described, that there is a ground for divorce and remarriage, and that that ground is adultery. Now, that's a pretty strong stand all by itself alone. If there's only one ground for divorce and one ground for remarriage, and that ground is adultery, that does not open the doors as widely to remarriage as might otherwise be the case. But he acknowledged that he had this stand or position on remarriage simply because this was what he had learned and carried with him and never thought much about out of the Christian Reformed Church. But interestingly, he did not change that stand and arrive at the position that adultery does not dissolve the marriage simply and solely on the basis of the teaching of the Bible itself about divorce and remarriage. Rather, he came to this position in a striking way, and that was he studied thoroughly the truth, the biblical truth of the covenant. And was led to the conviction that the covenant of God is an unbreakable bond of friendship between God and his elect people, so that although the impenitent wickedness for a while of the child of God is a ground and reason why God withdraws the experience of his love and favor for a while, the covenant is essentially unbreakable. Once that bond has been established with the child of God, that bond is permanent And not even the sinfulness of a child of God, the great sinfulness of a child of God, what we might call spiritual adultery, dissolves that bond. God is faithful in the covenant and maintains the covenant. Now what does that have to do with the truth about marriage, you may ask? And the answer is the Bible itself makes our marriages a symbol of the covenant of grace. That's done in the Old Testament in many places. That's repeated in the New Testament at the end of Ephesians 5, where Paul compares the relationship of Christ and the church to the relationship of a a believing husband and his believing wife. And in that way, Huximah came to the conviction that just as the bond between Christ and the church is unbreakable, so that no third party replaces the church, so also the symbol of that covenant relationship is unbreakable. And that led him to re-examine the biblical testimony concerning marriage itself. And he found, not surprisingly, that the Bible addressing the matter of marriage teaches that very truth. Marriage is unbreakable just as the covenant is unbreakable. And that's an aspect to this whole question that many churches do not pay attention to. The implication of the the breakable character of marriage is that the covenant also is breakable. And we find that in the teaching of the church. The churches that teach that adultery dissolves a marriage so that a man or a woman may remarry also teach that the covenant is conditional so that it's possible for someone with whom God has established his covenant and to whom God has made his covenant promise to violate that covenant so that that covenant relationship is broken and he's no longer in the covenant. The covenant and marriage go hand in hand, and the truth of one is the truth of the other. So that the Protestant Reformed Churches are known not only for teaching the unbreakable bond of marriage, which is a glorious reputation, regardless of the criticism and the disparagement, I rejoice in being part of a denomination that's known for teaching the unbreakable character of marriage. But not only are the Protestant Reformed Churches known for that, They are also known for teaching the unconditional and unbreakable covenant relation between God and his
1: elect people. That is interesting that development in doctrine led to uh, a development in uh, the practical uh, life of the children of God.
2: Yes, that's significant. But it also points out that churches and confessing believers who are quick because of the difficult circumstances of themselves or people they know and love quick to teach that marriage can be dissolved, had better realize that essentially they're also at the same time teaching that God's saving covenant with his people is breakable. And if they're not impressed by the severity of the sin of their teaching regarding marriage, they ought to be convinced of the severity of the matter of their implied teaching concerning the covenant of grace itself.
0: You talk about the unbreakable nature of the covenant as well and how it applies to marriage. Where in scripture can you appeal to that shows the unbreakable nature of God's covenant?
2: The clearest New Testament testimony to the unbreakable character of the covenant is the second part, the latter part of Ephesians chapter 5, where the unbreakable nature of the union of Christ and the church is testified. The word covenant may not be used there or found there, but the relationship between Jesus and his church is the covenant relationship. And in that whole passage, the apostle teaches mainly, that's his main teaching, not so much about marriage as about the relation of Christ and the church, that the relation of Christ and the church is an unbreakable, faithful, everlasting relationship. And marriage, in comparison with that covenant union, because marriage is the symbol likewise partakes of that lifelong character.
1: Now the reformers, Luther and Calvin, they allowed for divorce and remarriage to a certain extent uh, as well, right? And that's where the reformed churches in the past have followed their lead? There are
2: especially in the voluminous writings of Martin Luther statements to the effect that marriage is an unbreakable bond and violent condemnation, whatever Luther taught was violent, I guess I don't have to add that, but violent condemnation of divorces and remarriages. And yet, when he dealt with the subject itself, it is to be admitted he allowed for divorce and remarriage on the ground of adultery, and Calvin certainly did. Now, an explanation of that, they simply took over, in part anyway, what the Roman Catholic Church before them had been teaching. It was an almost uncritical acceptance of the common popular teaching in the Roman Catholic Church of the permissibility of remarriage after divorce in the case of adultery. But there's another factor that mitigates the permission of the reformers with regard to remarriage after divorce, and that is the Roman Catholic Church taught that marriage was a sacrament, and whatever the Roman Catholic Church taught about the permanency of marriage, it taught in terms of the sacramental nature of marriage. When it made strong statements about marriage being permanent, lifelong, Rome grounded that in the teaching that marriage was a sacrament. The Reformers condemned that notion that marriage is a sacrament and supposed that by condemning the sacramental nature of marriage, it was also rejecting the lifelong permanency of marriage. To put it in a slightly different way, I contend that if John Calvin had recognized that the condemnation of remarriage was not grounded in the sacramental nature of marriage but in the symbolism of marriage and the covenant and had examined the biblical teaching about marriage without the bias that came from Rome's teaching of the sacramental nature of marriage, he might have come to a different stand with regard to marriage, divorce, and remarriage.
1: And the doctrine of the covenant was not at all developed at that time.
2: That's correct. But then in the end, with regard to the unfortunate teaching of the Reformers, our stand is that we must be governed by such an important matter as marriage by the Scriptures and not by the Reformers. We allow ourselves to be led by the Reformers in many respects because they were sound, but the authority for our teaching and practice is not John Calvin or Martin Luther, but the Scriptures, the Word of God. And the Word of God condemns their toleration of remarriage. That's unfortunate, I grieve over that, but Calvin and Luther know the truth of marriage today.
0: You took the words right out of my mouth. And you mentioned as well that they're reformers, as we are also reformed. The word reformed means that always developing the truth, always developing and and seeking to learn more about the truth, never standing still. It's an important aspect of being a Christian, being a Reformed Christian, to be studying God's Word closely to better know and better understand the truths that are set forth in Scripture. The attitude that we should have is that there is always more to learn, and therefore we must be uh, humble when studying Scripture, and we can't force our own opinions on others.
2: And what you have just expressed, the Reformers themselves gave us in a motto, Reformed and always reforming. The Reformation did not end with the Reformers, and they taught us that themselves, always reforming, and by that examination of Scripture, coming to a deeper and better and sounder understanding of the Word of God.
1: And though uh, Reverend Hoeksema went in a different direction, I guess you'd say, at that time when he studied the Doctrine of the Covenant, he didn't go off on a tangent, but he brought the church back to the Word of God when he taught the truth of marriage. As an unbreakable bond. He governed himself by the word, didn't go off on his own.
2: Right, and there were pressures, I give him credit for this, that he took the stand and preached the stand that he did about marriage in the face of difficulties in his own congregation and in his own denomination. By the time that he came to the understanding of the truth of scripture concerning marriage, there were members of his own congregation and prominent members who had been remarried that the pressure was on him to fall in line with the tradition of the Christian Reformed Church and to keep his mouth shut regarding his new understanding of the truth of marriage. But he was bold in that respect. He felt compelled by the Word of God to teach the truth of the unbreakable bond of marriage regardless of the opposition that arose from his teaching out of his own congregation. Some years ago, I was researching this topic in the Standard Bearer, and it came to my attention that this opposition to what they called his new doctrine of marriage arose from very prominent members of his congregation and denomination. They wrote in the Standard Bearer, sharply critical of the stand that he was taking regarding divorce and remarriage, but he did not allow that to silence him He went where scripture led him, regardless of the consequences in his own pastoral work.
1: Do you know at all how that went? This must have been in the Protestant Reformed churches that uh, this took place?
2: opposition. Yeah. Yes. When, in the early 1940s, as I recall, Hoekhsima came to the conviction that the scriptures teach the unbreakable bond of marriage for life, prominent members of his congregation, First Protestant Reformed Church, objected likely they had divorced and remarried persons in their own family, but in any case, they opposed him in the standard bearer publicly, and he printed their objections, and then took that as an occasion to instruct those persons and the entire Protestant Reformed denomination concerning what the Bible teaches about divorce and remarriage. I think I have mentioned this before, but it's worth repeating, I think, to show the practical wisdom of Huxama concerning handling this There were members of his own congregation who were divorced and remarried. I'm not now approving of his action. I may criticize his action and may differ with his action. There were members in his church who were remarried and had families, about which we've spoken already. And undoubtedly, under Huxim's influence, his response to this situation was that these persons could remain married, And members in good standing in the church, but they might never be office bearers in the church. This was his practical way of handling that difficult situation. And of course, no one might be remarried any longer. So when these people died, that was the end of the existence of that kind of situation in his own congregation.
1: I was just going to follow up on that a little bit if you knew... Did the consistory come to that conclusion, and that's how they dealt with these?
2: The consistory of First Church made this decision as to its treatment of persons who had already been divorced and remarried. It was a consistorial decision. Not just Toksima. He, no, no, he didn't do it No, no. This was the consistory's decision. They might remain remarried, but they okay. might not serve in the consistory.
0: When you find that you no longer agree with a church's position on a view, what is the church orderly way of dealing with that?
2: If one differs, obviously, in a significant matter, o- over a significant matter, with a decision of the consistory, the right church orderly biblical way is to bring an official protest to the consistory showing the consistory its error. And if the consistory rejects the protest, the Protestant appeals that decision to the broader assemblies, to classes first, and if it gets no satisfaction from classes, then to the synod. And if the synod upholds the decision of the consistory, the decision of the consistory is binding for the denomination. I'm not aware that these people who disagreed with the new stand of Huxma and his consistory on marriage ever went that
0: Never far. Ever appeal? No. Okay. What about Huxma's route that he took? Did he, I don't know, send an overture to the synod, saying his understanding, how it had changed, and how he had developed the doctrine of marriage? Or who did, who does he appeal to?
2: Huximus simply preached it and taught it, and because there was no official synodical decision before that approving of remarriage after divorce, there was no protest that he felt necessary to make. Synod had not decided on this matter. It was a lively matter in the churches that could be preached about and taught by means of preaching and writing.
1: And publicly debated then. Yes. And it was, it sounds like. Yes. Okay.
2: If the Synod of the Protestant Reformed Churches had earlier taken a decision, remarriage after divorce is biblical and permitted, then he would have been required to send an official protest to the Synod.
1: Rather than uh, publicly preaching preaching against it. To my mind, I, I see a little difference with couples that were advised that they could divorce and remarry, and did so in ignorance. What do we say with those who were advised that that was okay? Whereas, of course, we know others, are, they just go to a church where it's, it's allowed because it's their will. They willfully want to do that, so they would leave our denomination, let's say, and, and go to a, a church that allows it. My thinking about all possible
2: instances of remarriage after divorce is that it's adultery and forbidden and condemned. And the judgment of those persons is God's decision to make, but at the same time, the seriousness of their condition is that they're living impenitently in adultery. And as long as they live impenitently in adultery, they're not forgiven, so that their, their eternal prospect is grim and forbidding. And that ought to enter into the call that the consistory gives to them to separate and not any longer continue living in adultery. Now that conflict evidently with the stand that Huxim and his consistory took back in the early 1940s in handling it. I can appreciate what they did to try to handle that situation, but that complicates matters at the very least. If divorce and remarriage are adultery, you don't make allowances for continuing in that adultery, but you condemn it and call to repentance, and repentance always includes a change of behavior in the matter. Does that mean hardship? We've talked about that, it does. And to that, my response is, as I indicated before, the Christian life contains hardship. And before any of us embarks on the Christian life, we ought to know the very real possibility that we may have to give up our life for the sake of Jesus Christ. We have to be willing to do that. And our circumstances do not determine the regulations of the word of God, but the regulations of the word of God determine our situation our life.
1: So in other words, rather than thinking of it in an emotional way, it's our calling to to look at it objectively. What does the Word of God say? Yes.
0: There is an emotional aspect to think of it as well. And it's not just, of course, the office bearers that deal with this. It's the members in the pew, you know, you and I sit in the pew, Jeff. We sit next to our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we desire that they live according to God's word. And if we see our brother walking in sin then we are to do so with a loving spirit, showing them in humility their sin and directing them to the truth of God's word. So from that sense, I guess we can have an emotional love for the brother in that.
2: There comes up in my mind an application of what we're talking about to the present climate with regard to homosexual relations. There are men In the Protestant Reformed churches or who have been in the Protestant Reformed churches who say, I love him, I love this man, even though I'm a man myself and I can't bear to think of living without him and I accept what they say about their feelings, but their feelings do not determine the stand of the church with regard to marriage or sexual relationships. In that connection, the Bible has far, far more to say in condemnation of remarriage after divorce, and it has to say about the prohibition of sodomy. Just in a couple of places, a few places, there is explicit condemnation of homosexual relationships. And there are theologians in the Reformed sphere today who jump on that and argue if the Church has opened up the door to remarriage after divorce in the face of the abundant testimony of Scripture against that, she certainly may open the door to homosexual relationships. So that ought to be in the background of our thinking when we're talking about this, The implications mm. of our stand regarding marriage for a lot more than marriage.
0: Yeah, a, a useful material on the subject of homosexuality as well. We had a series of podcasts by Reverend DeBoer on our podcast, Hope PR Ministry. So if you're interested in listening, and find out a little bit more about homosexuality, check it out. It's a very good series, very informative, and and covers a lot of bases. We've talked about the development of the truth in terms of being Reformed. Do you see, Professor, any area of marriage that the Protestant Reformed churches could develop further, or at least expound on?
2: I think as far as the doctrine of marriage is concerned. The Protestant Reformed churches have been led by God into a deep and broad understanding of the truth of marriage, and I'm not aware of any important aspect of the doctrine of marriage that the Protestant Reformed churches have not explored and confessed. But occasioned by the present-day uproar over abuse, I think there's a real possibility and necessity that Protestant Reformed ministers would make clear To all of the males in the Protestant Reformed churches, that headship consists of a governance of the wife and of the marriage as Christ governs the church and not a brutal overlordship as though he is the boss of the wife and she has to jump when he says jump. But it's the lordship of love that seeks the welfare of the wife and wins her obedience rather than demands it and forces it. Ephesians chapter 5 is important here. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. That's a giving love. That's a sacrificial love. That's a love that never harms the wife. I think that, acts, that aspect of the headship of the man, especially in light of what's taking place and been exposed in the church today, that ought to be emphasized more than perhaps we have in the past.
1: It seems like in recent years, with more understanding of spousal abuse, that legal separation is more common maybe you could speak to that God's word uh, is that adultery is the only ground for divorce what about legal separation is that a second way to leave a marriage when there is abuse
2: from what I have heard and I haven't verified it a mistake has been made by some that legal separation is really a form of divorce in the same category as divorce and that therefore consistories and pastors would shrink from what is known as legal separation and insist that an abused woman remain in the house with an abusive husband. And I think that's a mistake, and that's injurious to an abused woman. And part of the problem, perhaps, is a misunderstanding of legal separation, as though legal separation is a disguised form of divorce. My own understanding of the matter, and I think... This ought to be the understanding of every pastor in consistory, is that there are abusive husbands who are so destructive of their wife that they force her out of the home and out of an actual intimate relationship with themselves. Now, the way that's put often is that the abusive husband forces the woman to leave. But I don't find even that description of the situation to be true or helpful. She doesn't leave. I would insist on that. An abused woman does not leave, even though she packs up her belongings and walks out the door and rents a motel with the approval of the consistory. She's not leaving him, but he has forced her out. That's a different way of looking at it. And then, if he does not leave her alone, but forces himself upon her, even though he has forced her away from himself by his abuse of her, she is permitted to get legal approval that keeps him from coming into contact with her. That's legal separation. He has forced her away from himself because of his abuse. And then he attempts to force himself upon her still and probably accuses her of having left him unbiblically. And she gets the decision of the courts that he may not have contact with her. Legal separation is legitimate. Legal separation is sometimes necessary although all of this ought to be taking place with the knowledge and approval of the consistory. They decide that her situation is so, so bad and so destructive that it's a matter of his forcing her away from himself, and they approve of her decision to get the courts to approve of her wishes and need that he not have any contact with her. But under those circumstances, legal separation is permitted to a child of God, She's not divorcing, she's not performing the sin of leaving him wrongly, he's to blame for the whole situation, and she's calling upon the civil government to protect her physically from her abusive husband, and she has a right to do that. We have a right to appeal to the civil government to protect us from harm.
1: So in that specific situation, when she is in danger, that's what you're speaking of? Yes. You know. I had listened to your uh, or watched your YouTube uh, videos on spousal abuse. You had you gave a lecture some years ago uh, on this topic spousal abuse. I did and uh, in there you mentioned that you had re-examined scripture on this uh, or on this sin in the churches. Is that where 1 Corinthians 7:13 comes in? Uh, you have mentioned that in an earlier podcast. maybe we should read that. 1 Corinthians 7 13 and the woman which hath an husband that believeth not and if he be pleased to dwell with her let her not leave him is that is that a passage that you have re-examined in this regard
2: yes i would say i've re-examined that passage or to put it differently that passage has spoken to me more distinctly and clearly than it had before now this case has to do with a husband that believeth not. And that brings up the fact that if there's a confessing Christian husband who persists impenitently to abuse his wife, he shows himself to be an unbeliever. So at the same time that all of this is going on, the woman being forced out of the home and compelled to get legal protection, the consistory is working with the situation and is disciplining the husband. That's another fault we can make. We treat these situations as problems in a marriage and do not exercise the keys of the kingdom upon an abusive husband. He's in the process of showing himself to be an unbelieving husband, and he's not willing to dwell with her. Willing to dwell with her means more than that they both are under the same roof so that he can hit her and otherwise harm her and call her vile names from morning until night. Dwelling with her has the meaning of a peaceful living together in the marriage union and he's not willing to dwell with her and that's evident from the fact that he forces her out of the marriage relationship as far as its practice is concerned
0: that verse in first corinthians 7 verse 13 it says if if he be pleased to dwell with her let her not leave him is that leaving referring to legal separation or is that divorce because my bible has a footnote saying divorce
2: The point that this New Testament passage is making, the main point, and everything else is implication of the main point, is that there's a believing woman who's living with an unbelieving man. And the thought of the woman might be, I mayn't live, especially in the intimacy of marriage, with an unbeliever. After all, unbelievers deny Christ, and I as a believer confess Christ. I'm going to pack up my bags and my children and get out because believers may not live with unbelievers, and the rule of the New Testament is, regardless that the husband is a, an unbeliever, the marriage is valid. You live in the marriage with all the implications of marriage, sexual relationships, the help of the husband by the wife, everything possible, as much as possible, that belongs to a marriage, because marriages are valid between believers and unbelievers. That's the point. Now, we're talking about different circumstances in a way because both of them are confessing believers. Both of them belong to the Protestant Reformed churches. This abusive man, when the wife shows that she's being driven out of the home and away from him, appeals to that, I'm a believer, you must stay with me. But the fact is that by his abuse of her, he's not willing to dwell with her. He's willing to have her in the same bed with himself. He's willing to have her make the meals for himself But he's not dwelling with her. He's abusing her. And she's not leaving him. He's driving her out. Leaving in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 7 refers to divorce. A believing woman may not divorce her unbelieving husband just because he's an unbeliever. But she's not leaving him. She's being driven out. When he doesn't recognize that and forces himself upon her just the same, then she appeals to the civil government to protect her. That's legal separation in my judgment.
1: So then the, uh, the truth of the, that idea of dwelling with her, that, that would probably go back to Genesis 2 where God calls them to leave father and mother and cleave unto his wife. So that would be maybe the negative of cleaving to your wife would be refusal to dwell with her.
2: The main teaching of the text is that a believing woman is married to an unbelieving husband, and as long as he's pleased to dwell with her, she stays in the marriage, recognizing the marriage relationship, and she may divorce him, which is quite a a testimony all by itself, regardless of the implications. Such is the bond of marriage that it supersedes belief and unbelief, and that's because God instituted marriage for civil society before the church was formed. Marriage is not only for the church, marriage is for civil society. But I say again, an abusive man, regardless that he calls himself a Christian, in fact, he's showing himself to be an unbeliever, forces his wife out of the house and away from his abuse, and she may seek legal protection for that separation. She's not divorcing him. She's in a condition of having been forced away from him, and she has legal separate, legal power for that.
1: From your uh, experience in past history in, in the churches, is it the case that church leaders in the past, from your experience and from what you have heard, tried to keep these type of situations, they tried to keep them together with the understanding that you may, you have to stay together in the home to be faithful in your marriage, and reading this text that way so that they, they were keeping an abusive husband with his abused wife?
2: Without any reference to any particular person or persons, it has happened in our churches, I hope it's not any longer, that a badly abused wife sought help from the consistory, and the consistory appealed to this text to demand of her that she stay in the house and in the relationship with her abusive husband because for her to leave was forbidden by this text and was virtually a divorce. And when she, saw it, when she did it anyway and sought legal protection from her abusive husband, in what we call legal separation, the consistory condemned her and accused her and virtually accused her of divorce, unbiblical divorce. And that was a mistake. And that's in part why we have women in the Protestant Reformed churches today who are loudly clamoring for third parties to solve their marital problems because with some right, they say the church has not helped them. I don't approve of that. Uh, that. That is, that's not why I'm bringing that up. But this bears on your question. Yeah. And so I'm saying in brief, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 13 is not talking about a divorce, which the state recognizes, but as I've said, makes the point. Marriages between believers and unbelievers are val- are valid marriages. And the believer may not seek divorce on the ground of the unbelief of her mate.
1: I can see that it would be a powerful pull to try to salvage a marriage and keep them together knowing the permanency of marriage. But you're saying that that there there was a misunderstanding there in, in these certain circumstances of abuse.
2: Yes, and I've mentioned this instance before, but it's applicable here. Without having studied this matter or referred to 1 Corinthians 7 verse 13 whatsoever, early in my ministry... What I called sanctified common sense caused me to see the truth of this matter. A young woman came to the study weeping with a little child in her arms, informing me that her husband, who was a member of the church with her, had been drunken and got a shotgun out of the closet and shot a hole in her presence in the ceiling of the house, threatening her, of course, that he would shoot her. And the significant question that she asked as soon as I opened the door to her was, must I stay with him? And that question was motivated by her recognition of the strong stand that the Protestant Reformed churches took about marriage and particularly the calling of wives to live with their husbands. And my instantaneous answer was, of course not. I will go with you and help you to get your belongings so that you can live somewhere else for a while, separate in the language of legal separation, while we work with your husband and it's safe for you to go home. She was abused. She was driven out of the house by a 12 gauge shotgun. She didn't leave, she was driven and he wasn't pleased to live with her. He was pleased to scare her to death but he wasn't pleased to live with her. Now that is a concrete example of how 1 Corinthians 7 verse 13 must be understood. I would only add on that matter that in such cases there has to be a judge whether the abuse is severe enough to drive a woman out. And that's the role that the consistory must play. They judge all such matters of the life of the members of their congregation, not only for the protection of the woman, but also for the discipline of the abusive man who's living in grievous sin and must be admonished and disciplined if necessary. No wife may simply walk out of a, mer- uh, of a house on her own without the judgment of a consistory.
1: And that is admittedly scary for a woman, knowing that they have mistakes have been made.
2: And Very. consistories are dealing with unfamiliar matters right now, to a large extent, so that some allowance must be made for mistakes they've made in the past. But regardless of mistakes in the past, the judges in Israel are the
0: consistory. Regardless of the history, we trust that Christ is working in his church through the elders, For the good of his church and for the good of his people we trust that he is working there we're very thankful for you for the whole series that you've and the time that you've taken to sit with us professor this has been really interesting
2: i hope this is useful to the people of god